Thank you, Jerry. And thanks, Kevin and Colette and Bill. I did feel like I was in a living room. And I agree with you. That's, that's the best, isn't it? That is just, yes, yeah, you even missed that. Uh, just want to mention a couple things that, uh, before we get started. That uh, Stan and Deline are here. So if you haven't said hi to Stan and Deline, love, please. We're glad you're here. Uh, I, I always say that, uh, I said that one of the um, best jobs in the world is follow a beloved pastor, and one of the hardest jobs in the world is to follow a beloved pastor. <laughs> but uh, we are grateful for your ministry here, uh, Stan and Deline at Shepherd. And, uh, and thankfully, we still have a connection with your daughter and son-in-law, too. We just love them to death. So thank you for that, for being, being able to be a part of that. So uh, let's pray before we look at God's Word. Father, we do thank you for the Scriptures, the Scriptures that reveal who you are, that are uh, complicated and yet simple, and that are complex and yet true. And so, Father, we ask that you, your Spirit, be the teacher this morning as we open, this, open the, your Word to um, just the sticky part of the New Testament. And uh, we ask that we see you more clearly because of it, though. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing in the book of Hebrews, and we're in chapter 8 this morning. And uh, we finished chapter 7 last week about Melchizedek, which I'll get to in a few minutes. Uh, Most people recognize what this is, a uh, a foosball table. I think there's even one in the cafeteria for the students here at uh, at Horizon. And... uh, that's what, when I was a teenager, that's what we played instead of video games. And uh, my dad, when he was a teenager, it was pool. And he loved to play pool, and he even put one in our, in our room. But I remember him telling me that uh, proficiency at pool is a sign of a misspent youth. And uh, so I always say that about foosball, that proficiency at foosball is a sign of a misspent youth. And when I was in high school, I worked at a, a restaurant from when I was 16 on up and then in the summers when I went off to college. And uh, it would close at 10 o'clock on the weekdays, and then on weekends it would close at 11, which means after cleanup, we would get out of there maybe 12, 12.30, sometimes 1 o'clock. And after that, we would then head over to the 24-hour bowling alley in town and play foosball. And uh, that's what we did a couple hours, and we thought we were really cool. And, uh, but there was always guys that were cooler than us, and uh, they would come in, and the, the, the tradition is you lay a quarter down on the foosball table, and that meant that those guys would then play the winners of whatever you were playing, which also meant that I usually set out the next game. And so they would come in, and, and there were some guys, and I still remember, I can still see their faces, um, one guy that was particularly really, really good at it. And uh, it was amazing how he could control that little white plastic ball. I mean, he would pass it to each other, to, you know, to other people, and they would catch it. And they would move their men back and forth, and all of a sudden, you hear that pop, you know, in the back of your goal. You're going, ah, you know, another one. Or sometimes the goal, would, they would just stop. The action would stop. And the next thing you know, you hear that pop again. You don't even see the ball go in. You just hear the noise. It makes it the back of the table. And, they, you know, they were, they were just really, really good. But in spite of how good he is or was, nobody would confuse that with a real soccer game. Uh, we look at that and, and uh, we look at it and say, oh yeah, they're really good, it's really fun. But we know that the soccer, you know, the soccer players that we know, that are in, in England they call it the, the football match, 
that we know these guys are really good. These men and women are just amazing. You know, the way they can dribble the ball, move the ball between their legs and, and, and trick people, you know, weaving through other people and score goals and they kick backwards and, you know, all kinds of things. No, we, we don't confuse that. We know there's a big difference between foosball and soccer. But what if a family had been given a foosball table and had never heard of soccer, never even knew it existed, never knew that there was anything beyond that, they would not realize that that is just a copy of the real thing. That's kind of what the writer of Hebrews is doing here in chapter 8. He is saying that, this, that what they're practicing, what they're doing is, is just kind of a copy of the real thing, and even maybe even a poor copy, copy of the real thing. And that's kind of what he's doing here in chapter 8 with the, when he begins to talk about the new covenant, the better covenant. And we have been, this, the book of Hebrews is kind of like those little uh, Russian dolls, those little nesting dolls, you know. You have a little one here, and it started off with Jesus, you know, proclaiming to be superior to the angels. And then, and then using the second psalm that there's this human being Jesus of Nazareth, who is now sovereign over the earth and in the descendant of David. And then, you know, then he goes on to talk about him being the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he's not only the priest, but he's also not only the king, but he's also a priest. And if we're right that this book was written to the Essenes, they thought that perhaps there were two messiahs that they were hoping for, a kingly messiah and a priestly messiah, a secular messiah and a religious messiah. So then you've got this, and now we're getting into the big picture of the better covenant. And that's pretty much what it is from here on out, at least through chapter 10, that this is about the big, the big covenant, the better covenant that he is looking at. And so in chapter 8, he makes that transition, and we see that in verses 1 through 7 that he talks about this better priesthood. And he begins by saying, okay, everything that we've been saying up to now is that we've got that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the majesty. And we knew that. We knew that from chapter 1. But now he is also this priest. So we now have a better priest than what you're used to, than what you're, you're dealing with. The Levitical priesthood, the one in the temple, or the one in the tabernacle, the tent, before they built the temple. And he goes, not only do we have a better priest, but he is serving in a better place. He is serving in the temples, the heavenly temple. And he's not serving at the, the foosball version of the temple. He is serving in the heavenly of heavenlies. He is serving in a, a better place. And his ministry is also better. The writer goes on to say that if he was on earth, then he would have to offer sacrifices, which he can't, because he is the sacrifice, and he's not a Levite. He's after the order of Melchizedek. So therefore, he couldn't even do it. But it's even better. He's in a better place. He's in a heavenly place doing a better service. It's a larger, larger picture here. Uh, I didn't mention last week when we talked about the, the order of Melchizedek and how Jesus is this priest after that, uh, some people came up to me and asked me, three or four people, I kind of just glossed over this, asked me, well, what do you do about he had no genealogy and he had no, no father or mother or anything like that? So this is kind of a parenthesis here before we get back into the text, okay, just to kind of clear things up. Some people say that, that Melchizedek, he's sort of this this figure that sort of appears out of nowhere and kind of is this permanent fixture in the Old Testament. He doesn't come from anywhere. He doesn't go anywhere. He's just there. Well, there are some people who say that perhaps he was an angel who appeared. 
and uh, that he appeared to Melchizedek. Other people think that maybe it was the pre-incarnate Christ, that Christ before the incarnation appeared to Abraham in this, this form of a priest. This is my opinion, okay? Then we'll get back to the text. This is just my opinion. I think that is probably unlikely and unnecessary. I think the point here is that Melchizedek, he's making the point that he's just not a Levite, that his priesthood was not based on bloodline. It was based on an oath, an anointing of God. And Jesus is a priest like that type, not the blood type out of the Levites, which if we're also right and Barnabas is the author of this book, that makes it even more significant because Barnabas himself was a Levite. And he is, he is expressing again the superiority of Christ to his own priestly line. He recognizes this. Now that's assuming Barnabas is the author. Okay, Let's get back to the text. He's doing a better priesthood. He's a better priest in a better place with a better priesthood. Now we in the West, when we think of the heavenlies, we are more influenced, and I've said this before, we are more influenced by Plato than we are the scriptures. We get the idea that heaven is way up there somewhere. All you got to do is go watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and you will see how the West views God, that it's just some old man way up there speaking down at us every now and then. But in the scriptures, heaven is not like that. In the scriptures, heaven is all around us. I love Dallas Willard's expression. It's around our ears. It's everywhere. It's behind. And we have these interlocking between the heavenlies and the earth. And what it is, heaven is the realm of God and earth is the physical realm for us. And these things interlock all the time. And we look forward to the day when they will merge permanently. When the heavens, uh, when we see that in the Old Testament, God spoke from the heavens to Hagar when she was abandoned or when she was run out from the home of Abraham and Sarah. When Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, God speaks from the heavens to, to Abraham to stop him from sacrificing Isaac. When Jacob camps out in the desert and uses the rock for the pillar, remember that? He says there's this passageway. He sees this passageway from heaven and earth. And what is his reaction? God lives here, and I've stumbled into his home. This is right here. And, of course, it's repeated in the New Testament with the ultimate, complete interlocking intersection of the incarnation of Jesus. That is the truest, truest expression of Emmanuel, God with us. That is heaven and earth living together. And he said that's where Jesus is ministering from. It's not localized in one place. They thought it kind of complicates things when they, when they build this temple and they say this is where the heaven, this is where it most interlocks right here in this temple, but even more so in the Holy of Holies where you can only go in once a year and the priest has to go in by himself. Well, now he's saying he's from the heavenlies, mentions this is here with us in Hood River, in Mexico, in Thailand with my daughter and son-in-law in London. You know, he, he is here from the heavenlies. It is a better place, a better ministry, a better priest. But he goes on, he ends it, he says, but we are hoping for a better covenant because this one was flawed. It was not flawed because the plan was flawed. It was flawed because people are flawed. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of a rabbi named Lionel, Lionel Blue. He, had a, he was like the, 
the Jewish version of Chuck Swindoll or John MacArthur, okay? He had a radio show, real popular, and he said, he said Jews are like everybody else, only more so. <laughs> the covenant failed because the people failed. But this was always in God's plan. And he said, and, and so the author of Hebrew, like I said last week, he's got to do two things. He's got to convince this, his readers that, one, that the, the, the old covenant was flawed, that there need to be a better one, and he had to convince them then, on number two, that Jesus is the one who fulfills this better covenant. And so he says there in verse 7, he says, if, if there wasn't a better covenant coming, then why was the New Old Testament talking about it? Then why were they saying about this? What were they, why were they promising something if there wasn't something better to come? And he's saying, it has come. There is, the prophecy is there. It has been promised. The better has promised. And he says, what Jesus did is what the prophets said. This is that, he says. This is fulfilled in Jesus. And so now we're getting into better covenant territory. Better covenant, Hebrews 8, verses through, through, 8, 8 through 13. I'm going to go ahead and read some of that again that Jerry read. And I'm just going to mention some of the char three characteristics about it. And then we're going to look at what it means for us. Okay? The better covenant. He says it's, it, it, we need a better covenant. He's going to make it with the house of Judah. And it will remain faithful through his covenant. And he says, first of all, there is a restored knowledge of God in this new covenant. A restored knowledge of God. He says, I will put, their, their, uh, put the knowledge of God in their brains and in their hearts. And I love that balance here of brain and heart. That he's going to put that in us. This is a Trinitarian enterprise here, okay? We have the Father who's making the covenant, the Son who brings it about, and we have the Spirit who is, who is actually energizing and enabling this. And he will put it in our brains, and he, will put, and he will write it on our hearts, and we have this restored knowledge of God. We also have this restored relationship with God. They will know me. I will be their God. They will be my people. We have this restored relationship that has been broken. So we have this restored knowledge, restored relationship, and we have a restored future. And it's all based, it's all based, he says, on verse 12. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. It will be based on mercy and forgiveness. And this is not just about our purity, our individual access to God. This is about the future. This forgiveness and healing determines the future. So basically, we have a restored knowledge of God, we have a restored relationship with God, and we have a restored future with God. That's kind of the gist of the covenant. So what I want to do is we, is what does it mean for us? If the better covenant was true for them, then it's also true for us. So just some observations for here. The better covenant expands our soul. It opens up our heart. It opens up our heart to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and love our neighbor as ourselves. It expands our heart. It is written in our brains and it is written in our hearts. This does not mean, this does not mean that God suddenly uploaded all the information into our heads. Okay? This is about 
moving in our soul, moving in our heart. It is a better covenant because it expands our soul. It is a better covenant because it is about transformation and not education. It's about transformation. This information is not just to give us accumulation of facts. It's about transforming us. Every single one of us. We learn in all kinds of ways. We learn um, by, the, the, in the Western culture, we have put all of our eggs in the, in the intellectual basket. That if we can learn more facts, if we can learn more information, if we can learn more stuff, that's, where we, that's, that's what we do. But we, all, we know that we can learn a lot of facts that really doesn't help us live better. It doesn't help us be better people just because we know a lot of things. We learn that intellectually, but there's other ways that we learn. We learn, we, we learn through experience, through decisions we have made. We have to be willing to submit to God's will. We learn to those, those things. We learn our, by our emotions, even our negative emotions. Our anger can teach us things. Our love can teach us things. Our enthusiasm, our joy, those things can all teach us stuff. We, we learn... We, we learn by revelation from God. We learn by images and metaphors. We learn through our senses. All of these things we learn, but it's about changing us. God wants to, to put this in us because he wants to change us. And it doesn't mean when he says uh, they, won't, they don't need to teach each other, they won't need, nobody will need to teach them. What he's talking about here is top-down coercion. We have these laws here, and, I, and, and the, the priest or, the, or whoever it is has all the laws, and they're going to make sure, by God, you guys obey it. He's saying, no, this is an inside job. This is a transformative work. And yes, we can learn from each other, and yes, we can learn from teachers, but bottom line, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that changes us. The modern world, which where a lot of us grew up in, it was, it was uh, focused in on science. It was focused in on objective facts and learning that thing. And everything was reason. And we were, we were products of the Enlightenment. Well, then they, it was kind of rejected. And we, and we have now what, we, what people call the postmodern world, where all the boundaries have been stripped away. And there is no absolute truth. There is no really thing that any story that's better than the others. They're all good stories and they're all bad stories or whatever. There's just no, no boundaries. Well, to me, what, what modernism and postmodern has done, they, has, they have uh, disenchanted the world. We live in an enchanted world. We live in a Christ-bathed world. And modernism and postmodernism has stripped that away, has disenchanted the universe. And yes, I, I love science. I do. That's, that's my, in a former life, that's where, that's where I was. And I lo still love it. I still, describe, I still uh, follow these science uh, Instagram pages. And they fascinate me. But I also look at it and go, this is an enchanting place. And when we first moved here, I remember one of our friends were saying, they, um, they used to come here. And uh, they, they've moved to Washington since then. And she says, yeah, you just moved to a very magical place. And I looked around, I go, yeah, you're right. You're right. It is enchanting. This is not just information. This is transformation.
The better covenant is both local and universal. It's not just localized in the Holy of Holies. It is now localized in us, but it is also universal. It is for everyone, from the least to the greatest, it says. It doesn't matter economic standards. It doesn't matter race. It doesn't matter color, skin color. It doesn't matter education level. It is from the least to the greatest. It is, it is for every single person, but it is also universal. It's not just with our group and our tribe, and we have to believe that, or God is not worthy of the name God. If he is worthy of the name God, then it has to be universal. But it's also particular. It's also local. And I, I can't remember, I was trying to remember where I heard this, but it was somebody who said this is the scandal of the particular. That this universal God, at the same time, can speak and change and move and save individual people. That he cares about lilies of the, flower, lilies of the field, sparrows of the sky, and he cares about you and he cares about me in a way that we've never been cared for before and at the same time, everyone else. It's a scandal of the particular. I just like that phrase. I say it again. <laughs> it is both local and universal. And because of the better covenant, we become carriers of the divine DNA. We become carriers of the divine DNA. And that's what I think it means when he says, they will be my, my people, I will be their God. It's phrased in a really special way. It, he uses the, the preposition that means into. And literally it just says, I am, they are into me as my people, and I am into them as their God. It's a really unusual use of the, word, of the preposition there, but it just implies intimacy and connection, and I would say we carry the divine DNA. That almost sounds provocative, but I think that's what Peter was getting at when he says, you have been given something special. You are sharers in the nature of God. That is amazing. And we are carriers of the divine DNA. We carry it with us. The better covenant is about restoration and not retribution. It's about mercy and it's about forgiveness. And anyone who talks about God as if we can't wait till he comes and Proves us all right, by golly. He's going to take us away and they're going to find out we were right. That's not what it's about. The new covenant is about restoration, not retribution. It's about restoring us to him. Restoring the good creation. It's not about vengeance. It's not about punishment. It's about restoring us. The book of Hebrews and this theme is like, has this like river running all the way through it. And it starts, you know, if you think of even of the Columbia River, I'm thinking of the Mississippi, but if you think of the Columbia River, it starts small, and then these other rivers flow into it until it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you get here into the gorge, and you see how wide the river has become. And then you go to Astoria, and you see, okay, it's just flowed into this big reservoir. Okay, that's what the book of Hebrews is like. It's like this river that's been flowing, 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 and now we've reached the, the, the big, better covenant. And it's this big reservoir that he's going to be talking about from here on out. That's what it's like. He's saying that, that what you had was good, 
but this is better. And he's saying, what you knew was true, but it wasn't the complete truth. Jesus is the complete truth. And he says, what you know is it's important, but this is more important. This is better, more important, more true. I didn't forget verse 13. Verse 13 says, by calling the covenant new, he was made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. I don't think any of us in this room are planning on going out to build a tabernacle or a temple and start starting sacrifices up again. Uh, though there's some Christian groups that give it a good old try, I think, you know, try to recover and try to go back to the Old Testament. But I don't think anybody here is interested in doing that. But we all have these old systems where we have tried to find meaning. Um, family, career, um, education, our economic system, a philosophy, uh, another, um, another way of looking at things, uh, uh, politics, or whatever it is. We, we've got these old systems that we think we can find meaning there. Well, I'm going to apply verse 13 to us. This is better. This is better. Don't go back. It's not that these things are bad. It's not that the economy is bad or the government's bad or, or the education's bad or our family's bad. Nothing like that. It's just that this is better. This transcends all of that. And again, God is not worthy of the name if his plan doesn't transcend all of that. It transcends it. It encompasses it. It transforms it. It changes it. All those old systems, leave them behind. John's gospel says in, in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received a blessing after another, grace upon grace. And uh, you look that up in, in, in the Greek, and it has a really odd way of translating it. I mean, it's kind of odd. This is as good as translation as any, but literally it would say, grace responding to grace gracefully. You get the point? In other words, we start with grace, we end with grace, and we travel with grace the whole way through. This is the Jesus of Hebrews. This is the Jesus of the New Testament. This is the bigger story. And we are to live in a larger story. Sometimes I think the Christian church, you know, has narrowed its focus, and we have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, and we've got, we, our most important job is to defend our, our rights and defend our way of life and, and express our grievances, and that's where we are. Well, he, well, Hebrews, to me, is calling us to a bigger story, a much larger story that transcends all of that, that encompasses all of that and changes all of that. The better covenant. The better covenant is based on forgiveness and mercy and grace. Not for the sake of our individual purity, although that's part of it, but for the sake of our future. Our future as individuals and our future as a human race. That's how big it is. That's the better covenant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us. Teach us never to take it for granted. 
move in our hearts. Write your law in our hearts. We give you permission to do that, to write it in our hearts so that we can learn to love you and hope in you and trust you and so that we can love others as, you, as, as we love ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.